our great virtue as a human is that we're very deprogrammable and reprogrammable. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond but at diamonds direct we beg to differ have you ever met a mother strong radiant timeless this mother's day give her the gift that meets her match with diamond jewelry starting at 200 plus diamonds directs exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at diamonds direct diamonds direct your love our passion Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Robert Thurman, professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University and the president of Tibet House U.S., a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and promotion of the Tibetan civilization. The New York Times recently hailed him as the leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism. Robert is the first American to have been ordained a Tibetan Buddhist monk and is a personal friend of the Dalai Lama for 40 years. He is a passionate advocate and spokesperson for the truth regarding the current Tibet-China situation. Robert is the author of many books on Tibet, Buddhism, art, politics, and culture, including The Essential Tibetan Buddhism, The Tibetan Book of the Dead, Inner Revolution, The Jewel Tree of Tibet, and Why the Dalai Lama Matters. His latest book is a graphic biography of the Dalai Lama called Man of Peace, the Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. If you're getting value out of this show, please go to oneyoufeed.net slash support and make a donation. This will ensure that all 185 episodes that are in the archive will remain free and that the show is here for other people who need it. Some other ways that you can support us is if you're interested in the book that we're discussing on today's episode, go to oneyoufeed.net and find the episode that we're talking about. There will be links to all of the author's books, and if you buy them through there, it's the same price to you, but we get a small amount. Also, you can go to oneyoufeed.net slash book, and I have a reading list there, oneyoufeed.net slash shop, and you can buy t-shirts, mugs, and other things. And finally, oneyoufeed.net slash Facebook, which is where our Facebook group is, and you can interact with other listeners of the show and get support in feeding your good wolf. Thanks again for listening. And here's the interview with Robert Thurman. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. Nice to talk to you. I'm excited to have you on and talk about you are one of the leading Buddhist scholars in the West, and so I've been familiar with your work for a long time. And you have a new book out called Man of Peace, 
the right. illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. So we'll come back and cover all that in just a minute, but we're going to start like we normally do with the parable. Mm-hmm. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, in life there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. Mm-hmm. The grandson stops for a second and he thinks about it and he looks up. And he says, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, uh, that means that... Um one should definitely not feed the bad one and feed the good one. And the ideal, though, you know, is in the Buddhist world, at least, I think and in lots of spiritual traditions, not just the Buddhist one, I think the best thing to feed the good wolf with is the bad wolf. <laughs> <laughs> and then you don't have to worry about that so much anymore. And also the good wolf gets the energy that before the bad wolf had. It's really difficult to be the good wolf or to let the good wolf uh, function if the bad wolf is always nagging and nipping at it and, and crippling it. And um, I think Western culture too much has the attitude that it always has to be a balance. And even it has the culture that the good wolf is really nice, but the bad wolf is stronger. And even like modern psychology, Freudian and otherwise, tend to reinforce that by the idea that the conscious mind is weak and it's small, it's the tip of the iceberg, and the unconscious mind is much more powerful and pushes your impulses to do things that you can't control and you just have to live with that. Whereas the Buddhist uh, uh, plan is, and other spiritual traditions, I would argue, is to feed the good one and uh, starve the bad one or consume the bad one where it's even better than just starving the bad one, and turn the bad one's energies into the energies of a good one. So you really, really have the one wolf, and uh, that's a good one. And that's what enlightenment is somehow, where you're just the one good wolf. And um, maybe you just cease being a wolf, actually, and you become like, I don't know what, toothless, friendly dog, you know? <laughs> like your nice pet dog, you know? Happy dog, loyal and faithful and friendly. But you keep the strength of the bad wolf so that other people's bad wolves or general bad things, you can defend against them, you can help them become free of those and so forth. And I think the, the one nice news that Buddha had was that the human being is capable of becoming a good wolf. It's not a matter that the bad wolf will always win and always overcome. That goodness is more powerful, ultimately, and I, I can give a reasoning for that. But uh, just that in short, that's what, that's what I would say. And so that goodness is often referred to as Buddha nature? Uh, Buddha nature is, yes, one aspect of that. That's a way of referring to goodness. And, of course, Buddhahood is Buddha nature in full, you could say, fully realized. And, you know, you do hear some people give a version of Buddhism where sort of Buddha nature or, you know, enlightenment means sort of, you know, busting your hump to try to get away into some nirvana imagined as somewhere else. And then enlightenment is just being resigned to just being here and dealing with it. I know some people who pretend to be Buddhist experts and they say, well, you're always dealing with the devil no matter what and so on and so on in yourself, you know. And uh, actually, that's not accurate. Uh, we do have the capacity to become wholly good. And the reason being good, is, the good is more powerful is that the good is 
that which you do for others. It is fundamentally altruism, love and compassion, you know, which sourced by from wisdom. And um, since there's so many others and they have so much need, that's a huge energy that it draws on. Whereas the bad is based on selfishness, and in a way you're just doing your own uh, will and seeking your own uh, pleasure and uh, success, and you have a lesser drive because there's only one of you. And so, therefore, uh, the good is more strong. You know, and When you're motivated for the good, for others, then you have more power than those who are selfish. Excellent. Let's talk about enlightenment for a moment. It is a concept that is very much at the heart of Buddhism, and there's a lot of people who, I would say these days, tend to think of enlightenment as something that doesn't really happen mm-hmm. for most people. What's, mm-hmm. what's your view on that? I mean, is enlightenment something that, that, that we can be looking for in this lifetime? I think so. Perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood might take most of us a while, Although the good thing about it, which I can at least I console myself about, since I still have failed to get it fully, I have had a few hints, and I think I understand sort of the logistics of it to some extent from having studied. Because the enlightened people leave a map, you know, they leave they have a great, excellent science of the whole of enlightenment and unenlightenment. So uh, my consolation is that when you get it, you kind of realize you always had it. So the sense of not having it and trying to go find it. Is, uh, is based on your ignorance. How, unfortunately, however, that ignorance is so powerful and strong that you have to go as far as you have to go in order to find it. And But you can, and you will, and some will in this life, although that's exceptional. Uh, and even if it happens in this life to someone, it means they have developed tremendously in many previous lives, which Buddhists would say even to have become human means you have become very close to enlightenment. You have evolved from all kinds of other life forms that we've all been from beginningless time, where the human one is a particular balance. And our great virtue as a human is that we're very deprogrammable and reprogrammable. Unfortunately, that means if we reprogram ourselves toward the negative, we can become worse than most any other animal. Yeah. But if we try to reprogram ourselves, deprogram those negativities, those bad wolves inside ourselves, into a really the awesome, great, mega Buddha wolf, then uh, we are really capable of doing it. So that's why education is so important for the human. Because the human is completely, not exactly blank slate, but is tending in the very, very good direction and very, very uh, malleable and mutable, let's say. And so we can mutate, you know, we can mutate into the butterfly, we're the proverbial cocoon, you know, and we can mutate into the butterfly pretty, pretty easily. But it might take us a few human lives, even in the most esoteric, most accelerated way. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And here's the rest of the interview with Robert Thurman. In your case, you said you've had a couple hints towards enlightenment. I think that was the word you used, or, or small taste. Tell me about what that's been like. Well, I'll tell you something that I'm particularly happy with and excited about nowadays, because I just finished editing a book of a student of mine, Chinese student, uh, who Chinese-American student, but who spends a lot of time in China, and who is a great translator, has become, has a PhD from our university, and had a lot of studies himself before that. And he translated for his thesis a book on the Buddha nature, channeled in a way by the future Buddha Maitreya, according to the tradition through a master, an Indian master named Asanga in the 4th, 5th century, and then commented on by a great Tibetan Lama during the world renaissance of the 15th century in a brilliant manner. And, you know, before that, I knew there were kind of two ways of understanding the Buddha nature. And one was that it was just a kind of um, notion of the mind, you know, the intelligent and enlightened mind that somehow we have a seed of inside. And um, it was sort of taught by Buddha to reassure those who are habituated to feeling they have a sort of structured self and they're secure with the self and so on, to think that there was some kind of self-like structure, Buddha structure inside themselves. And then the more sophisticated one is where the Buddha nature is just emptiness. It is a sort of ultimate reality and everything, it has the ultimate reality. We're all empty in, in some way. And therefore, that's the Buddha nature. And I had, I had sort of those in my mind. And then when I redid this book, because my student has been living in China for a decade or so, we had to finish his English version. He translated the same book into Chinese. And we had to finish the English version, so I had to kind of very much redo the English and do it sort of thoroughly, which I had not here and did a part of it in a thesis that I had gone over. And then I realized this beautiful idea. What a Buddha is, is someone who identifies has come to identify in a visceral manner with the entire universe, including all the sensitive beings in that universe. So technically, for Buddha to become a Buddha, and meaning fulfill his or her Bodhisattva vow, not to depart into enlightenment, into nirvana, until everyone is free of suffering, he couldn't have left any of us behind. So what that means is that he completely thinks he's me and you. Mm -hmm. So anybody who ever attained Buddha, and actually there's infinite numbers of them, but the recent historical one is Shakyamuni from 2,500 years ago. So he thinks he's you, Eric, and me, Bob, and plus everybody else, and plus your dog there, that beautiful nice <laughs> Irish setter. He thinks he's that. And in doing so, he's capable of that because he experiences us on two levels. 
On one, he sees us as made of what is called clear light of bliss. You know, the feeling of vast expansion into sort of ultimate space of reality and feeling that all reality is configurations of bliss. At the same time, he doesn't ignore that we experience ourselves as an isolated entity looking out from our senses into an environment that is often threatening and dissatisfactory and problematic and frightened and anxious and occasionally triumphant and, and content, but, but always on the edge, kind of. So he experiences us both ways. And therefore, since he sees that our reality is this bliss, he automatically knows what it is he needs to manifest to us that will open the door to us to find out our actual nature and drop our ignorance. Because the, the part of us that thinks we are separate from everything and we can't deal with it and it's overwhelming to us is our ignorant, it's, it's our misknowing, it's better than say ignorant, our misknowing part. So if that's the case, then Buddha nature, that so-called emptiness or Buddha nature is not just a vacuum, but what it is, is the Buddha's mind in us which is our deeper reality than our mind in us. And when we become a Buddha, we suddenly realize we're one with all the Buddhas and, however, unfortunately, because of the compassion, all other beings, even the non-Buddhas. The idea that my Buddha nature, and yours too, Eric, and the dogs, is the Buddha's mind in us, what's called his dharmakaya, his reality body. And because of that, you know, since the Buddha experienced us as pure love, as made of love, but then realizes we don't feel that, so then he, automatically that love overflows in such a way that we, he wants to manifest to us whatever encourages. And actually, it is believed by Tibetans, particularly, I'm not sure the Indians had that belief before, maybe they did, but, you know, out of the Indian tradition, the Tibetans believe that the future Buddha, this Maitreya, manifest now in the form of dogs. It fits with your wolf thing, because a dog is originally like from wolf stock, and yet a dog just loves us, they trust us, we trust them and feel comfortable with them, we reach out and we pat them. So it's the idea that it's kind of a nature that we might be afraid of on a subconscious level, you know, because like in Game of Thrones sort of thing, they might devour us <laughs> in a jail if we were thrown in with some hungry ones. But actually, they don't, and they will die for us, actually, and they will give themselves for us. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the, that's the future Buddha. That's the Buddha's mind in the dog, in other words, the way. So therefore, Tibetans kind of horrified by any culture like the Chinese that eats dogs. They really freaks them out, you know? I'm horrified also. On the other hand, unfortunately, kind of hypocritically, they didn't exactly have an ASPCA in the Buddhist monasteries, and they collected these dogs, and they fed them with what they could, but there were so many dogs, they became kind of feral. And it's so, you know, future Tibet, the monastery will have to have an ASPCA branch outside the monastery, definitely. <laughs> you know, and I had a friend, Chai Ling, who was one of the, uh, the Tiananmen Square students, democratic students who escaped and who got awards and ran around. And she always had this mutt, this lovely, nice mutt. I'm sorry, I forgot the mutt's name. Very nice female dog always used to bring with her, even to ceremonies at the UN and everywhere, she insisted. And the reason she said she had that is that Mao, you know, made them eat all the dogs because they didn't want to waste food on dogs. So then, and birds and everything. So Chinese lacked pets. And then they got into this thing of 
you know, class struggle and cultural revolution. So kids would turn in parents and parents, kids and uncles and cousins. And so they kind of really lost trust for many decades. And they're just kind of recovering it now, you know, they, otherwise it made them kind of really paranoid. And the dog, she felt, you know, so we had a kind of plan of a dogification program for China in those days, after Tiananmen in the 90s, of how to take thousands of, do of dogs from all our pounds. First, we would have to inject them so their meat tasted terrible. <laughs> and then second, take them over there and then allow people to pet them and so on. <laughs> we had a silly plan like that, which unfortunately we couldn't implement. But I think it naturally got implemented anyway, and I think they have pets now, luckily. And they're cheering up. You know, Chinese are very much cheering up. I think animals, at least for me, have been a way to learn to love in a way that is easier to a dog for whatever reason. And then that, for me, is translated then into being able to do it better with humans. Right. Exactly. makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about your latest. It's a graphic, I won't say novel, I'll say a graphic biography of the Dalai Lama's life. Right. We don't have time to go into a lot of it, but it really covers a couple of key things. One is the development of Tibet, what has happened in Tibet over the years with China, mm -hmm. uh, the Dalai Lama's role in that, the things he's tried to do, the peacemaking. And then it's also talks a lot about his internal spiritual development. Right. It's that latter part that I'd like to spend a few minutes on, okay. which is more kind of where our show focuses on, you know, what can people do in their own lives to live a better life. And I'd like to talk about a term that is used a lot in the book. You talk about over and over, it was sort of an esoteric teaching that the Dalai Lama brought out to the rest of the world. And I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but I'm going to try. Kala Chakra? Yeah, Kala Chakra. Yeah, Wheel of Time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that teaching, because it looks like it was this very remote esoteric teaching, and yet now he has had these Kala Chakra teachings or ceremonies for hundreds of thousands of people across That's the world. Right. That's right. He's, he's done it uh, 34 times. And um, the, the grand initiation, as it's called, sometimes for five, six hundred thousand people, a lot of people from around the world, as well as, as, well as hundreds of thousands of Tibetans. 
of those who were in exile, those who were ethnic, already originally Indian citizens in the Himalayan area. And uh, in a couple of eras, especially during the 80s, when things were looser, quite a few could come out of Tibet just for that. But now they're prevented at the moment, the way things have been since 2008. So um, the thing about that is, you know, the title Man of Peace, the reason we give it that title is because he has walked the talk in his, he's reached, but he did that, he wanted to do that from the beginning, but he really reached that gradually to really, really be able to do it as he has effectively of responding to kind of a cultural genocide and certainly a uh, colonial occupation, annexation, invasion, all of that. Uh, he's responded to that nonviolently. He has refused to make them the enemy, to call in for invasion and this and that, or counter-invasion. Uh, his brothers did for a while against his advice and wishes, since he doesn't have like total power over what the Tibetans do. But um, he said that would be doomed, it wouldn't work, and he didn't want to do it and so forth. And it was he never called the whole country kind of to rise. And he asked them to respond heroically, peacefully. And um, so that makes him kind of man of peace. And one of the things I've always tried to do in, in the, my previous book before that, something called Why the Dalai Lama Matters, is that at this time on the planet, we have two major things threatening us. And one of them is this kind of industrial militarism, where the weapons are so powerful, no one can win a war. And an escalated war among the powers would cause the destruction of everything, all, all life for sure. And then we have industrial consumerism, which is like pumping out all kinds of, you know, carbon and climate change and wrecking the environment in, an, in another way for profit and money. But especially on the militarist side, you know, since we could all imagine if all the money spent on weapons and militarism today were spent on quality of life for all the people today, there really wouldn't be much problem. And people wouldn't really feel they had to go invade someone else because they'd all be wealthy enough. Yep. But people then always say about the Dalai Lama, well... Great, he's a man of peace, but isn't that completely unrealistic? You know, it's like with with this basic thing that is that I mentioned at the beginning with the wolves, that we and uh, the world's culture now in materialism, following pretty much on the Western colonial power and its culture, Abrahamic religions culture, has this idea that the good is weaker than the than the bad, and therefore you have to arm or you're going to be done for, and everyone has to be armed to the teeth, basically, to protect yourself. And so they say, well, then he's not like that. Tibet got wasted because they demilitarized in the 17th century, etc. And well, yes, true. But after the 17th century to the 20th, they did really well. And then the British invaded and then the Chinese reinvaded the Manchus at first and then the nationalists and then the communists finally. And then they did get wasted. Yes. But before that, a thousand years earlier, before Buddhism, they were wasting other people like a typical conqueror. So in a way, they just made a choice to be vulnerable in order to have a blissful, beautiful society with spiritual value, love and compassion and joyfulness at the center of the culture. And so, yes, it's been 60 years. He's still, the Tibetans are still suffering. And so now we have to live up to the power of peace. We have to manifest it. We have to dialogue with the enemy. We have to find a way to get along with everybody. And we can do that. And and we have to do that. I don't know, talk and snack. <laughs> I think talk and share a snack, you know, break bread together. As the great teachers of humanity have been trying to tell us for 3,000 years, you know, that's what the human destiny has to be by our own free will. We have to choose that and we have to do it and we have the power to do it. So he, as a man of peace, 
you know, which actually is the word that, you know, Prince of Peace is the word used for Jesus, you know. But then in the, the problem with that for Christians is that they then, they sort of have this image blazoned into their head by Constantine, the Roman emperor, that Jesus got wasted and Caesar remained in power, you know. So he was nice with his Sermon on the Mount, but it's not practical advice. Whereas now in the 20th century, it is practical advice. Buddha gave the same advice 500 years ago and also wasn't fully listened to. And a lot of other, all basically all the holy teachers have done so. Muhammad, people wrongly think Muslims are universally violent and jihadist, and that is untrue. Muhammad defended himself against the Meccans for a long time. Then when he won that thing because of the power of his charisma and of his of his idea of Islam, of let yourself go and give yourself to the universe, you know, Islam means to surrender, you know, surrender your ego. Uh, he then walked into Mecca unarmed. Maybe, you know, you could say, well, the Meccans were afraid his, his, if they had killed him, his army would punish them. But basically, he still made himself vulnerable and he walked in to do pilgrimage with his former enemies unarmed, and then they be they became his friends, and then you developed the power of Islam, which spread rapidly around the world. So all the great spiritual teachers have taught this, and all of us and the and the kings and the leaders and the high priests have not listened, and they've turned those religions into battle standards and banners that they've carried into battle, you know, for Jesus, you know, and the, Jesus never said, bomb thine enemy. He never said, take the sword to my enemy. He said, love thine enemy, you know, and so did Buddha. And it's time we listen now. And so the Kala Chakra is this amazing thing, which is part of a prophecy that Shambhala, this magic country that somewhere eventually becomes the sort of global culture. It doesn't mean people all become Buddhists at all. It doesn't mean that people all become Shambhalans at all, but it just means that within the terms of each culture, people find the good side and they find the good wolf in the teachings and they, and they enjoy life and they love each other and it's a much more happy planet. In relation to that, it's the word chakra, like in English, means a wheel, but like in English, a wheel can stand for a machine. So Buddha's way of not abandoning beings into his own enlightenment. In other words, not attaining a nirvana, a freedom from suffering on his own, separately from beings, is that he sees all future moments and destinies of beings, apparently in his enlightenment experience, it is stated in all versions of his enlightenment. He sees his entanglement with all beings in many infinite previous lives, and then he sees all their future possible destinies, how they can make choices that will help them and ones that will harm them. And he puts his energy out of compassion to try to shape the world in such a way that it will lead them, give them the optimal evolutionary path to their own fulfillment and enlightenment. And to him, those future moments are just as real as the present moment 2,500 years ago under the tree when he achieved full enlightenment. So in other words, the illusion of time being these separate moments is no longer afflicted by, and, and his compassion enables him to be with us as we evolve life after life, all the beings do, into, the, into a state of where we find that same understanding of reality as a bliss, freedom, indivisible, as Buddhists would say at the deepest level. So the Kala Chakra is the most vivid, symbolic, and uh, yogic expression of that sort of vision of the Buddha operating in history to optimize the planet, not abandon it to some dark age and some horrible, you know, corruption and self-destruction and things, but to see to it that it evolves, although it doesn't look like it on the surface with its holocaust and world wars and craziness, 
but basically the sensitivity of the humans and ultimately of the, all the beings is such that they're more and more sensitive, they're more and more well-educated, more and more aware of each other. Look at Facebook, we have a kind of global brain through the internet nowadays where we know everything that happens to everybody else and, and our compassion, natural sensitivity and compassion, empathy gets us to like the other beings that used to be very alien to us. And so that's, the, that's sort of the Kalachakra legend, a kind of benign, you know, new age revelation thing, you know, like book of revelation, but not, there is a little violence, but that's the violence we are now having, but it sort of self-destructs the destructiveness. And then everything goes well. Human beings have great opportunity to use that human intelligence to really enjoy life and bring such enjoyment to all the other creatures in the universe. That's why he has especially done that Kalachakra all around. It's been like a, a, a mass prayer to see the positive possibility of human evolution and human history also on this planet. And, uh, and that's why he does that. Excellent. Thank you for that explanation. That's very helpful. Well, thank you, Bob, for your time. It's been great talking with you. I've enjoyed it. I really like the book. I'm glad you guys got it done. I know it took you a long time. And uh, thanks for all your work uh, with Buddhism and the Tibet House. Thank you, Eric. And uh, have a great time, okay? You too. Okay. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support.